Lord God, our Father, as we enter into your holy word today, we just pray that you would bless us with this, Lord God, that you would bless us with understanding and apprehension, with open hearts, Lord God, to receive the things that you have for us here. You are so good, Lord God, and yet one of the greatest blessings that you ever give us is insight into divine matters. There's no greater area or avenue of understanding and apprehension than to understand divine things. Everything here on earth is pale by comparison to your light and glory. And so we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In chapter 13 of the book of Luke, Verse 2, Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Because they had been executed by Pilate. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is a difficult set of verses about Jesus dealing with the problem of evil, and he deals with it directly, and he deals with it indirectly. One is a mere natural evil that we would call a chance thing that can just happen to anybody. And in a strange way, Jesus kind of affirms that. He says this was this tower in Jerusalem near Siloam, and it fell on some people. And so they were wondering, were these people especially bad or especially evil that the tower fell on them? And Jesus says, no, not especially. And he talks about some other people that were persecuted for their faith by Pilate, so much so that he mingled their blood with the sacrifices in order to desecrate them. And he said they weren't especially evil either. But he doesn't say that evil isn't the problem or that sin isn't the problem. These days in the world, and especially in our communities, there's a constant and ongoing grappling with why the evils. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I know that even though that was written by Kushner all those years ago, the average Christian understands that that phrase doesn't work. At the end of the day, bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to the rest of us. So that's the simple answer, right? But it does get deeper than that, especially young people. They grapple with this, and they get especially to college age, and they go into the colleges, and they're, they're attacked with this idea that a really good God would never let these evils happen. And so if the God that the Bible says existed did exist, it would be a very different world than it is. And we remember that God planned a very different world than it is. In the beginning, there was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no vengeance. There was no immediate necessity of justice and judgment. But with sin coming into the world, all these things complicated themselves so that even nature itself is affected by sin. The other day, I was watching this documentary about mushrooms. Some of you know I'm on this mushroom thing, right? Kids, uh, I've never had so many mushrooms to deal with, frankly. I'm out in the backyard. It's been rainy lately. I've got like 40 kinds of mushrooms there. And so I'm looking them up, and this mushroom, they say you can eat it. I don't believe them. This mushroom, they say you can fry this one in butter. I'm like, nah, no thank you. But I got to this one. I found this one mushroom. And you know how, you know, with your phone these days, you can look it up, and it's pretty accurate, right? And there was this one mushroom called the fly agaric. And it says... 
all of a sudden it has a red thing on the bottom of it. It says, don't eat this mushroom. I wasn't going to eat it. I wasn't just like, I wonder what this does. But it says, this is a very deadly mushroom. It was apparently carried over from Russia and Europe. And so sometimes it turns up in gardens and that kind of thing. It also says that the ancient shamans and priests of other religions used to eat it in order to have euphoric experiences. And I was like, but no, I'm not going to eat it. <laughs> I mean, I've got a collar. I don't wear it. It's, I keep it in a closet. But. So people have, here's how you find out that mushrooms kill people. Somebody ate the mushroom. There are things in nature that are affected by it that are deadly, right? There's animal attacks. There's all of these things going on. And then there's the natural evil that exists. A lot of you know the significance of this day. Basically, anybody over 18 or 20 or maybe 30, you remember 9-11 all those years ago, right? This is the anniversary of that. And so it's almost a visiting time to remember certain moral evils that have come upon a people. People that were bad came and attacked people that had done nothing to them. People say, well, it was to make a point. Well, it's a bad point poorly made, right? And yet evil exists in, this, in the society. And recently, you know, I've done a, a couple of sermons on what the Christian's response is to this. One of the things that I've told you guys very clearly is it's not only available, but it's an actual positive moral good for you to defend yourselves from evil people trying to do evil things. Even using violence is necessary. And the reason that has to be preached and taught is because it's taught in the Bible, but a misunderstanding of the Bible says you should just be a pacifist and suffer the evils of society willingly. That's not actually the teaching of the Bible. Yes, once in a while you might have to turn the other cheek. But if somebody's trying to attack you or your family or do them harm, you have a moral duty to defend the innocent and to protect unjust blood. Then we went on from that and we talked about what penalties does God actually have in the Bible for certain kinds of things and what kind of a different society would we have if the punishments that God said were requisite to certain kind of actions in society were carried out instead of these namby-pamby weird little punishments that we've made up, right? People do horrific, evil, violent things to them, and we send them to counseling as if what they need is a good talking to. It's bizarre, and it's unjust, but also God in his law says it is not available to you. And then we had that long conversation about, well, some of these things are in the Old Testament. Well, that's true, but they do not actually change because the moral law of God is eternal and unchanging. And what is right and wrong and good and evil has not changed a single bit. And so we recently, in our community's experience, we had this young lady, Eliza. And even if you never met her, she was taken from you. She was taken from us through violent means and toward evil ends. And so we speculate on things. Was there an actual demonic situation going on here in which this evil was so provoked and so pronounced and so extreme? And maybe it was. But in practical terms, it doesn't really matter. What actually matters is an evil was allowed to exist and it was given a foothold and it took full, full advantage of the opportunity. When evils happen in a community, 
The last thing people in a church want to hear is that they participate in the guilt of it. And yet there really isn't any other way to read the Bible. Because God says when a community or a people or even a nation swear themselves to him and they do what's right, he protects them on every side from all of their enemies. He makes the evil people serve them, but they will not serve him. And he gives them protection and peace on every side. So when we start to lose these things, when we start to abandon God's will for the people and their lives and the community and the nation, protections go along with it. They do. You know the United States has never lost a war? I know people debate little wars here and there, but we've been protected promiscuously and completely for hundreds of years from ever having to bend the knee or submit ourselves to a foreign power. For hundreds of years, that's incredibly rare. And now he's lifted us up and made us the singular superpower in a world. And that never happens by accident. But I'll tell you something else from the Bible. It's not always good. He did the same thing to Rome. He made them the greatest superpower in the world to make them an example of a downfall and disgrace. As all of the barbarians tribes from the far off jungle places like Germany and France came and eventually conquered them all. You know, the Holy Roman Empire wasn't in Rome, right? Where was it? Germany. And until a hundred years ago, the same people that ruled that empire were ruling the known world. It was the King of England, and it was the Kaiser of Germany, and it was the Tsar of, uh, of Russia. And they were still ruling up until very recently, but now the world has still not seen fit to actually define itself and how it will determine its laws and its pathway and its morality and its essence, and who we are, and what we are, and now there are competing narratives and stories over what the human being is. But let me tell you this. If you define yourself, and your people, and your children, as, and your offspring, as a mere accidental byproduct of nature, in which you're just complicated animals, but you don't really have a depth, or a meaning, or a purpose, and you're not created in the image and likeness of God, you will end up with nothing. It really is true that it's God or it's nothing else. As I was watching this documentary on mushrooms, me and Ian were watching it. I was like, oh, no, I know where this guy's going to go. Oh, this is going to go so sideways right here. He's been telling us about mushrooms, and he's obviously, like, in love with mushrooms, right? And then it happens where he looks at us in that wistful way, you know, the way they do in the science shows, when they're going to they're gonna break off some big wisdom for you now. They're going to give you some big, like, Bible-level truth. And he says, really? We're all mushrooms. <laughs> oh! Now, Ian starts laughing. It's so laughable, but I'm upset. And he's like, we evolved from the mushrooms, and we're like still eating oranges and stuff. We're all mushrooms. And I, I, at that point, I thought, he's been eating too many mushrooms. <laughs> But he had to have an answer, right? You have to have an answer for who you are and what you are and why things are the way they are. But if your answer ends is in there really is no right and wrong, there really is no good and evil, and we really don't matter in the universe, your answer stinks. Your answer is a terrible, pathetic answer. I don't care how much you dress it up in the sciences or chemistry or astronomy. I don't care what you dress it up in. Your basic answer to who and what you are is a laughable 
completely ridiculous answer. You're not here with us. The human being created in the image and likeness of God, he has a problem dealing with the facticity of evil. It's around us. We can't explain every aspect of it, but we have answers for the mere presence of it. And the answer is not to just disregard it or pretend that it's not really there. In this, as we go on, we've been talking about the law. I want to go to James for a minute. One of the most neglected books in the New Testament because it says so many true things. And in James chapter 2, he talks about the people that have faith. People that have faith is all of you. And it's everybody else who's in a church today. And it's everybody else who's practicing some kind of religion, especially a Christian aspect of religion. And in James chapter 2 from verse 17, he says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Now that's a complicated phrase because we steadfastly hold to justification by grace alone through faith apart from good works. And he's going to complicate that for us. He's going to make it hard for you. He's going to make it hard for you to hold that in good conscience if you take him seriously instead of just avoiding him. Because James just pesters people. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? In other words, you got good theology? Good. You do well. Even the demons believe that, though, and they shudder. In other words, the demons have as good a theology as you do. Maybe better. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from good works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was also fulfilled when it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them the other way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. We want to be very careful that when we're justifying ourselves by faith apart from good works, we don't have an empty, runny, meaningless, nonsensical faith. If it doesn't manifest itself in love for God and your neighbor, he's saying it's a fake faith. It's a faith in words. It's a faith in abstractions. You can say all these grand things about God and the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union, and you can have all your doctrines in a row, and if it doesn't manifest itself in the outpouring of love for God and your neighbor, he says, it's a fake. It's a fake. The idea that your faith could be a fake should be disturbing to you. If there is no love, there is no faith. Next, we go to Romans chapter 9, where I know this is a tough one, but it's one of the places that God tells us about salvation and his work and his way among people, even in regard to good and evil and the manifestation of it in our lives. Several of us in this congregation have lost people closest to us within the last year. It's not a rare occurrence, this kind of suffering and separation when somebody goes on through death and are face first with the Father. And the rest of us are left here to deal with the consequences of it. It's among the worst things that ever happens in a human life on earth 
is dealing with and being confronted with death. Now, it is a great comfort when they know that they are with the Father and we will receive them back again. They will either come to us or we will go to them, and we don't know the math of that, but we know that the reunion inevitably happens. Yet at the same time, he says this in Romans 9, chapter 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. He's talking about why there are Christians and not Christians. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham just because there is offspring. But the quote is, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Because remember, he had two sons and only one of them was the son of the promise of God. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise was. About this next year, I'll return, and Sarah will have a son. That's 12 months, not 9 or 10 months. So you know he's saying he's going to produce the very son that he's talking about. For this is what the promise said. Verse 10. And not only this, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand... Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Before either one was born or did anything good or bad, one of the things he's saying there is it's not because of when they were born. And it's not because one would do good and the other one would do bad. It had a lot more to do with God in his elective purpose than it had to do with the object of his love. So then we all kind of say this next verse in verse 14 in our minds. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Come on, you had to have said that sometime. When you see that God allows this, but he doesn't allow that, and some people do well, and some people die, and some people are healthy and well, and some people are sick, and some people get rich and we're not them, and we kind of say to ourselves, is there injustice on God's part? Why am I not getting what I want? Why is there this separation and distinction between people where some fall and some rise and some are blessed and some are cursed? Is God playing favorites? What is he doing with the universe? The answer he gives to this is, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, in case you think he's saying something else, he follows up the verse with this. So then, it does not depend on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on your will or ability. It's not because you've been so good. It's not because you've been so bad. The things that happen, the good and evil in the world, in a way you can take great comfort in this. God knows exactly what he's doing with the universe. He's not the slightest bit confused. I do not know that I will live a single day after this one. I, I really have to live. Remember when you were young and you didn't care if you lived or died and you'd do crazy things and go to crazy places and you'd travel the world and you'd go to, you'd go to places you wouldn't even go with armed guards now, right? But you would go because you didn't care, right? Then all of a sudden you had kids and you're like, I have to live. I got to live at least 20 years. I never thought I'd be, you know, verging on 55 and raising a five-year-old. That was not my plan for my life. But I have to live now, right? I have to watch what I eat, and I'm not going to go all the way to, like, exercise, but I think about it from time to time. I'm going to stop eating salt and, you know, stop drinking so many Coca-Colas. There's not a thing, single thing that I can do 
to change the will of God in regard to the day that he says we're going to meet face to face. Every day I get is a blessing. It's a gift. He has breathed out his spirit into me. And on the day he's ready, he will take it back. And if it's before the moment that I have in mind, he will not be wrong. He will not be wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't pray for a later date. And that God actually works through the prayers of his people to bring about the things they pray for. But he also puts in mind to us to pray for the thing that is actually his will so that these two things come together at a specific point in time. It's not as if God's dithering or he's changing his mind about things, but the things that we pray for actually have a place in the economy of our salvation and the well-being of our lives. He even capitalizes on this by saying in verse 17 of Romans chapter 9, Scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed over all the earth. Pharaoh was the most powerful, successful, richest man on earth at the time. And God says he only created him for the purpose of manifesting God's glory around him. How did he manifest his glory? By the utter destruction of Pharaoh and his armies and his nation. Hey, you worship a scary God. He's a loving, wonderful God. He's a God of mercy and a God of kindness. But he's not a flippant, foolish, little silly God. That might be more attractive to you, the Reader's Digest Jesus, right? But it says in Jude chapter 1 that the same Jesus that is in the New Testament is the same one that delivered them from Pharaoh with a mighty hand. Make sure your friends are your friends and your enemies are your enemies. He goes on to say, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. He has had mercy on you. Another thing that comes into our minds, right? Why doesn't God just have mercy on everybody? Right? That's a fascinating question. The theologians and the philosophers, they grapple with these things. Here's the ultimate answer the Bible gives. He doesn't. Read the book of Job. The whole thing is about God gives mercy where he gives mercy, and he doesn't where he doesn't, and uh, that's about it. What are you going to go behind God in the creation of the universe in order to figure out what makes him tick and what causes him to be the way that he is. In that conversation with the philosophers, one of the things that we understand is there's nothing behind God. There's nothing to go behind him to cause him to be the way that he is. He's righteous and he's good, but he makes his judgments and they're his own. You can't figure them out or fathom them, but also you can't cause God to do anything. You just don't have that level of gain. So here he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Because nobody can resist his will. And here's Paul's answer to this incredible mystery. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? So what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory and the vessels of his mercy, which were called beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Here's what he's kind of saying when you translate it in the vernacular. You can't be so 
transfixed by the incomparable mysteries of God's divine nature and the things you can't answer, to not praise him for the fact that he has saved you just because you know he doesn't save everybody. That's a weird answer to that question. God, if you're not going to save everybody, I'm not going. Like a temperamental child, right? I remember being a temperamental child. I had this one experience, you know. I was about seven. Maybe I was eight. And my grandpa, who was old Ohio farm boy, he came down. We were living in Las Vegas, Nevada. How did we get there? It's a long story. Ask my mom. She'll tell you. But, and he came, and I got out my bike. We were riding bikes, and I still had my training wheels on the bottom of my bike. And you know those old farm boys. He's like, this is not going to happen on my watch. And he said in that Ohio farm boy way, you know, they always had that nasal twang. Chris, go to my trunk and get my tools. So I go get the tools, and he takes off my training wheels. I'm like, I do not know how to ride a bike without training wheels. I'm about to die. And he took them off, and he's, I think he was about 80 at the time. He's running behind my bike. And he's making me ride the bike, and I'm crying. <laughs> and uh, my dad was there, and there was this one time where I turned to my grandpa, and I said, you are not my dad. <laughs> was a good moment. But it was only a moment. And like a good grandpa, smacked me right in the mouth. I remember not being hurt, but just being transfixed by the moment I was experiencing. He had raised seven boys. He knew what he was doing. There was only one person in that conversation that did not know what they were doing. And I looked at my dad like, you know, Dad, you're going to save me from this guy, right? And he just laughs. <laughs> because I had said the wrong thing to the wrong man, right? Now, he could have took me to the woodshed, but, you know, I'm a grandson, and you know all your grandparents. I don't know what weird thing happens to you, but you're all softies. My mom was tough when she was raising four boys. Now she's a total pushover. I don't even recognize her in her parenting of the grandkids. But no, he smacked me in the mouth. And you know what? It took me a little while. Uh, here's one thing. Did I ever talk back to Grandpa again ever in my whole life? I knew that man a long time. I never gave him the slightest disrespect. Ever again, Grandpa was not to be fooled with. Right? He was a man's man and a good guy. But also, you know... You kids are sitting there thinking, oh, no, this is going to be terrible child abuse. Somebody should call the police. No, he did exactly what was necessary at the time for my well-being. He corrected my nonsense, and I benefited from it in life. Your earthly parent corrects you in life, so your heavenly father doesn't have to correct you in the long run. Right? So he did what was necessary. He corrected me, and I loved him for it. I remember the thing. I loved my grandpa so much more after he smacked me than I did before. It was almost like before he smacked me, he was just some stranger that used to come and leave me a dollar once in a while. But after that, he was my grandpa. Tell this story. We, you know, he taught me music. Everything I know about music, I learned from my grandpa because he'd sit down and we'd go to the kitchen and it was me and him. He'd get out his mandolin and play all his old drinking songs from the 1920s. Little brown jug, little brown jug, I'm going to get me a little bread. You guys don't know that? 
But no, you can't find fault with God because he corrects. And you can't find fault with God because he intercedes and invades into human societies and corrects our foolishness. You also can't find fault with God when he starts to remove his protection. The real thing to do is to cry out to him and say, God, protect us. God, we repent. God, we are sorry. God, you are right and we are wrong. God, do not hand us over to our enemies to be assaulted on every side. God, do not leave us alone here. We are your people called by your name according to your purpose. Save us. And if my people that are called by my name will change their ways and return to me, I will accept them in the beloved and I will bless them. Another verse here. This is a strange one to go to here, but we're going to go to it. Revelation chapter 21, because there are a few other places in the Bible where it so gets to the point as this point. We go through these things and God has mercy, but he mainly has mercy on us. And we can get very confused as to why he's not having mercy on other folks. But it's not really the point of his program to explain to us every jot and tittle of everything he does according to our estimations or understanding. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Now that is what we're looking forward to. And really, even the travails of this life, we have to look forward more to the inevitable outcome of things than the turbulence along the way. This entire life you have, things are going to happen to you. And things are going to happen around you. And you will hear about things from far away. And it will be hard to reconcile with your understanding. But what you need to focus on is you know your God. And he knows you. And you are blessed by him. And you are loved by him. No matter what happens. Who knows what's going to happen over the next hundred or a thousand years. But we know where all these things end. And sin and sickness and death will be put away. And gone forever. I want you to hold fast to your God, especially when things look dark and turbulent and confusing and where you just don't understand what he's doing or why certain things are taking place. You don't necessarily get that answer. But you do get this answer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Lord God, our Father, we praise you and thank you for this great gift of your grace and mercy and that we know you, Lord God. We pray that you protect your people, that you turn aside the wave of destruction and violence that's falling upon us, Lord God. That you bring back to us a time of peace with neighbors and peace with enemies on every side, Lord God. That by your spirit you would keep us safe and well, and we know, Lord God, that you intend to do these things. 
We thank you for this great blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing the closing hymn. Number 277.
God look up and receive the blessing, not that I bless you, but that Jesus Christ blessed you. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you now and forever. Amen.